Amen. Well, hey, it's good to be with you. And what I wish was true is I wish I could sit across from you right now and just check in and say, how are you doing? Um, how's your heart? How's your mind in this whole process? There's something about this week, I've noticed this. Uh, this is a week where it seems like the emotions of fear and frustration or outrage are starting to really grow. Um, and there's a lot of fear still out there, fear about the virus, fear that other people are messing this whole stay-at-home thing up and they're not doing it right. And there's a lot of outrage and frustration at the government restrictions and all this sort of stuff. And there's like these two ends of the spectrum that, you know, like we always do, we're getting more and more polarized. As the people of God, we've got to recognize fear, frustration, outrage, those are not for us. And what I pray for you is just that your heart will be full of peace and purpose because God is not done with you uh, and, and the fear and the frustration that we may feel is not what he has for us. So I wish I was with you today, but since we can't be with you, I wanted to share some things out of God's word that I hope will be encouraging to you. So uh, last week we ended a series we have been in for a long time. We, we ended the series in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, with Easter, with the resurrection. That's where Mark ends it. It just kind of ends with this cliffhanger, a question about what do we believe about Jesus. Either he is still dead, he is in that tomb, and we have no reason to hope, or he is risen, and that tomb is empty, and hope is our new reality. And I, I just, I loved this study in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, I got so much out of it. I hope you did too, but we're going to start a new series today. We're going to uh, start a new Gospel today to hear a little bit of the rest of the story after Jesus rose from the dead, but before he ascended into heaven. So if you have a Bible, why don't you find your way to John chapter 20. That's where we're going to be today. Let me set up this new series though with this. How many of you know who this guy is? Not the actor, like the actor's Peter Falk, right? But the character. This is Columbo, and I am totally dating myself by uh, using this illustration, but Columbo was a great show. It started in the 70s. I think there's Columbo episodes in the 80s and 90s. I don't know. But I, I used to always watch this show. It was about this incredibly smart police detective who appeared to be a bumbling idiot. That was kind of his shtick. He, he would always solve the crime. He would always catch the suspect, but he would act like he didn't know what he was doing until the last minute. And I used to love the show. It was very formulaic, but I loved that. He always did the same thing. He would show up to the house or to the workplace or, you know, some suspect's place where they were, and he would ask him a whole bunch of these inane questions, and inevitably the same thing would happen. The suspect would get very frustrated and annoyed and think, this guy is just so dumb, and he would dismiss him, and then Columbo would say his farewells, and then he'd always have this moment. If you ever watched the show, it was the best moment of the show where he'd stop and he'd like act like he forgot something, and then he'd say, there's just one more thing. And then he would ask them the question, or he would make the statement that would totally catch them in their crime. And it was that, that moment where you realized just how smart Columbo actually was, that he was only messing with them and appearing to be stupid, but he actually was the smartest guy in the room. And I loved the way he played it out, and he would just wait till the last moment he was about to leave, and then he'd say, there's just one more thing. Now, here's how it connects. I was thinking the other day about Jesus in the Gospels, and I feel like on some level, he kind of does this. 
He's been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He is about to leave the earth. He's about to ascend into heaven. But then there's like these collection of scenes, and there's just a few of them where he appears to people, and it's like he says, hey, there's just one more thing I wanted to mention before I go. And then he says something to them that totally changes their entire story. So I want to just take a few weeks. We talked about Jesus rising from the dead last week. And I just want to look at these scenes where there's just one more thing Jesus has to say to somebody. He kind of pulls a Columbo on him, except for the acting dumb part. He doesn't really do that. But there's a lot that we can learn from the one last thing that he says to a few of these characters in his life. The first one is Mary Magdalene, and it happens here in John chapter 20. So uh, that's where we'll be, John chapter 20, verse 11. You'll notice right away, John is a very different gospel writer than Mark. Uh, We're jumping into the middle of his resurrection story. The way that he writes it, Mary and Peter and John, the disciples, they all have gone to the tomb. They discovered it was empty, but they don't know what to make of it. And so Peter and John go back home, and Mary stays at the tomb, and this is the moment that Jesus pulls the Columbo thing. Look at verse 11. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. Now pause right there. I don't want you to picture like Mary with like a solitary tear rolling down her face because that's not how Middle Eastern women would grieve. Like uh, this would have been like a loud wailing and a weeping. I mean, this she is beside herself because at this point, she thinks that somebody stole Jesus' body. She's imagining the worst. (coughs) Excuse me. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. Excuse me, just a sec. Apologize, apologize. The coronavirus has got me there. I'm just kidding. That is in poor taste. I just have a small cough. <laughs> All right, can we come back to me for just a second? Seriously, this is the panic that we live in, right? Like you have a little cough and all of a sudden you're worried about what it means for you. I'm doing fine. Please don't worry. It's just a yeah, dry throat. Anyway. All right. Mary, she's weeping, she's wailing, she peeks in the tomb. Verse 12. And saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They ask her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. <clears throat> at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, here's one of the mysteries of the resurrection of Jesus. People who knew him while he was alive didn't recognize him after he rose from the dead a lot of times. And we don't totally know why. It could be that he looked different. Uh, It could be that maybe when you see someone who has been just beaten beyond recognition and crucified, hung on a cross, and then a couple days later, you see them restored and whole, it's possible that just in that moment, like your brain can't compute that this is the same person. we don't know here. Maybe Mary had just been crying so hard. You know how your eyes kind of get all blurry when you're crying? Maybe that was the reason that she couldn't recognize him. We're not totally sure. But whatever the reason, she didn't realize it was him. 
Verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. There's something about that to me that is just so beautiful and so touching. Like he just, like he, he says her name. And that was the moment that she recognized him. We don't know how he said it. We don't know what it sounds like. But there was something about the way he said her name that instantly she knew who it was. Instantly she knew it was his, him. Now, in Jewish culture, your name is more than just what people called you. Your name was your identity. It was your reputation. It was who you were. And so what's stunning to me about this is like when Jesus wanted her to realize it was him, he didn't say, hey, it's me, Jesus. Like he didn't say his name. He says her name. And there's something about that that it it makes sense to me. I would say it this way. We know that it is Jesus by the way that he holds our name. By the way he tells us who we are. That's one of the ways that we recognize that it's our Savior. That Jesus could have just come back from the dead. He could have ascended into heaven. But he came back to say her name, Mary, so that she'd know it was him. That was his one more thing. But he's not quite done with her. He has another thing that he wants to say to her. Look at verse 17. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, what's stunning about this part is this was written in a time, we have to understand, this is not our culture, but this is the culture that this was written in, where the testimony of a woman was not thought of as even legally valid, right? So if you were trying to write a convincing story, you would never write it in a way where the star witness in that story was a woman. Least of all, a woman like Mary, who at one point had seven demons cast out of her. So she was not someone who necessarily had the best reputation. But this is what I love about our Savior. This is what I love about Jesus. He didn't say, Mary, go find a man. That's not what he said, because he doesn't think that way. Instead, he said, Mary, go tell those men what you've seen. And he chose her to be the apostle to the apostles. He chose her her to be the first person to testify to the risen Jesus. She's the only person who knows. At this point, not one person on the planet knows the biggest fact in the history of facts. That's Jesus is risen. And when it came time for him to tell everybody about this, that, hey, I'm no longer dead. I've risen from the dead. I've conquered death. I've conquered sin. I've conquered it all. Jesus said, I choose Mary. Now, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think we got to acknowledge this here. Uh, Within churches, like 
for many years, there have, has been this debate about the role that women should play in church. And like almost from the beginning, there's been that debate. And it's worth saying this, that this is a debate that there are good people who love Jesus who land on both sides of this issue. And there are also, this is what makes it sticky, there are bad people who just love themselves on both sides of this issue. Uh, so at Pulpit Rock, as we navigate a debate like that, the thing that we kind of bring to the table is just what does the Bible say? That's going to be the authority that we kind of use to navigate a debate and land on these sticky issues in, in, in a, a position. So some people look at a few verses that the Apostle Paul wrote in, in his epistles, and they conclude that women should not be able to teach in church or hold certain leadership roles. And those people would also point to this fact that Jesus chose 12 disciples who would later become the 12 apostles, the fathers of the church, and they would say, well, that means that certain roles should only be held by men. Now, that's not how we approach it at Pulpit Rock, and I want to explain to you why. You don't have to agree with me on this, but I want you to understand my thinking on this. I believe if we properly interpret those verses Paul wrote, that he never intended to establish a permanent transcultural commandment against women teaching or leading in churches. That's not what he's doing. He is not writing a new law here. That in church, God somehow would forbid women from teaching or leading men, like for the rest of history, in every possible instance, it is a commandment. That's not what Paul's doing. When he gives instructions to these specific churches, those verses are easy to misinterpret, but I think at the baseline, we have to acknowledge that we cannot turn them into some new commandment. That was not what Paul was doing. And I would also say this, that we have to understand the reason why Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples. It was primarily related to the rabbinical structure of the day, which was not just dominated by men, it was exclusively male. In fact, I looked this up, the first female rabbi in the history of the planet was ordained in 1935. So this whole rabbi-disciple thing, you can imagine 2,000 years ago, it was not just a, a male-dominated structure, it was an exclusively male structure. And I think Jesus was focused on a few other things other than reforming this system that had a, a long list of flaws, including gender inequality. But even without those two facts, the fact about those verses that Paul writes and a fact about why Jesus chose these 12 disciples, it seems to me that this question of what does the Bible say about this, that this is the defining story about how the God of the universe feels about women teaching and shepherding men towards truth. Because every other theological truth, like everything else that we believe, pales in comparison to this one truth, he is risen. It is the center of our faith. It is the most important truth that we know. And if we're going to quote Paul to restrict women from teaching and, and uh, to keep them from leading, then we also need to quote Paul when he says this, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's what the Apostle Paul says, that nothing else matters. If Jesus is still in that tomb, then our faith is useless. I want you to think about this. When the risen Jesus, the only Son of God, God incarnate, God on earth, wanted someone to preach that first sermon about the biggest theological fact we know, the fact that makes our faith worth something more than nothing, the fact that makes our faith less or more than useless, 
when he wanted that sermon preached, he chose Mary. And he could have chased down Peter. He could have chased down John. That would have been far more acceptable in the culture of his day. But instead, he gave that first sermon to Mary. And he asked her to lead it. He asked her to preach to the apostles. That is how the God of the universe feels about women preaching and leading men. And because at Pulpit Rock, we want to be like Jesus, we want to do what the Bible says, at Pulpit Rock, we're going to also affirm the teaching and communicating and leadership gifts that women have. Women, I hope you know this. God wants to partner with you as much as he wants to partner with any man. And men, I hope you know this, we need to be secure and confident enough in our manhood so that we can follow Jesus' lead and welcome our sisters to the leadership table. We have to make space for them. That is part of being a man, that women would ever have to fight to have their voices heard in church. That shows just how weak we've been historically as men because Jesus didn't make them fight for that. Right? I want us to follow Jesus' lead in this, and that means we have to invite women into the teaching and leadership table with fearlessness and confidence. Now, as important as that is, and as passionate as I am about that, I don't think that's the main thing that's happening here. I don't think that's actually the, the main purpose of what Jesus is saying. I think that's a secondary thing. Notice what Jesus says to Mary. The sermon that he entrusts her with is this sermon. Tell my brothers I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, this is a shift in language for Jesus. In other places in the Gospel of John, Jesus would refer to God as his father, but here he is intentionally pointing out this new relational dynamic that he and his disciples have. We have become these adopted siblings of Jesus. That's what he is pointing out. And God is a father to us in the same way that he was a father to Jesus. That's what he's eager to tell these guys. There's something beautiful about that, isn't there? He doesn't tell Mary this. Tell them, you now have access to God because the veil has been torn. He doesn't say, tell them, hey, your sins have been atoned for. He doesn't say, tell them, hey, you've been justified through faith. All of those statements are true because of what he just accomplished on the cross. But instead, what he says is, we're now family. God is your father. I am your brother. We're brothers and sisters. I think there's something about that that is stunning, it's beautiful, but it gives us insight into the mind of Jesus. Like we know forgiveness, atonement, uh, that was a big part of his death and resurrection, but I think with these words, he's telling us his motive on the cross. His motive on the cross was relational restoration. That's what he's doing there. That's what he's asking Mary to preach about. I love the way Thomas always says this. Uh, he, he always says the Bible is the story of God putting his family back together. That's why the first thing he said to his disciples was not, hey, your sins are forgiven. Hey, you get to go to heaven. Even though both of those things are true, that was not the first thing he said to them. He said, uh, tell them, uh, tell my brothers I'm going to my father and to their father. And there's something beautiful about that. Preacher I really like, um, I heard him once say this, the real gospel, it's the sort of thing you should want to be true even if you don't believe it. And that's how I feel when we read this. Like I, there, everything about this story, I just, I want it to be true. I long for it to be true, that Jesus would know our name, my name, your name, in a way that nobody else does, like he does with Mary. Like that Jesus would call us brothers and sisters, 
Like, that's just stunning that he would call God our Father like he did with these disciples. I long for that. that. God, the God who created everything, that he would consider us family in a way that would never be altered, and that after he rose from the dead, that would be the thing that he was most eager to talk about. Man, I long for that. Not to mention the fact that he elevates our, our sisters and our daughters, and there's justice now between men and women in, in, in the invitation that he gives to Mary. You know, there's something about this. I think what we see in Jesus uh, in this moment is that his death and resurrection, in his mind, it ushered in something familial, not just something spiritual. But this was about family. This was about restored relationships. This was about adoption. And whether you believe it or not, I, I, I think those are the things we long for. So here's Jesus risen from the dead, ready to make this exit, like ascend into heaven, and he stops and he says, hey, there's just one more thing I wanted to mention. We are family now, like all of us. We are family. Everything I had with God as his only son, you have it now too. So here's the question I want to end with today. Does Jesus' resurrection for you mean the same thing that it meant for him? Maybe let me ask it a slightly different way. Are you acting like a son or a daughter to the living God? Or are you acting like something else? Now Jesus rose out of that tomb eager to talk about God's family and how you are a part of that. And are you living into that eagerness of our Savior? I remember uh, in sixth grade, I had a friend named Keith. And his dad owned a construction company. And occasionally when I would go hang out with Keith, uh, we'd get to go out to the storage yard of the construction company with his dad. And it was amazing. There was like all this big equipment. There was bulldozers and there was tractors and there were all these warehouses. And we would run around that place like holy terrors. We would just climb on all the stuff. It was like utopia for a sixth grade boy. It was probably very dangerous, but we would do it. Uh, but here's the thing. Also in the construction yard was construction workers. And it was like these big burly guys and they would see us climbing on something and they'd yell at us. And they, you know, it probably seemed unsafe to them. It was probably a little unsafe. But maybe they were worried we were going to break it. I don't know. But they would always yell at us. That's what I remember. Keith and I, we had two very different reactions when we got yelled at. I was terrified of these construction workers, so I would like respond like a little kid who just got in trouble. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, you'll stop. Please don't tell my parents. You know, that was kind of my response. I was afraid. I was a response of fear. Keith, on the other hand, like his dad owned the place, and it, like he would have a very different response. And I used to just watch him. Like he would call him out by name. He'd be like, hey, Rick, hey, Rick. Hey, my dad said we could play here. You want me to go get my dad? Like, and he would just challenge these guys, like these big, burly construction workers. And they would instantly have this change of tone with Keith when they realized what he was doing. He was like, oh, hey, Keith, Keith, I didn't realize that was you. How you doing? You want to you wanna drive the bulldozer? You know, I mean, it was like this instant change. Uh, and there was, there was something different about the way that Keith responded to these guys. Keith knew that his dad was everyone's boss. And so he walked around that construction yard like he owned the place, like nobody had any authority over him except his dad. I walked around the construction yard like I just snuck in, like I was just like nervous all the time, I was fearful all the time. But Keith acted like he was the son of the guy who owned the place. 
So Jesus raised from the dead. The first thing he says is, you are my brother. You are my sister. God is your dad. Because of what I just did, we are now family. Here's my question to you. What would it look like for you to live as if you are the son or daughter of the God who owns the place? What would that look like? You know, it doesn't mean we get to boss everyone around like Keith did. That's not, you know, that's not how our Heavenly Father uses his authority. That's not how Jesus uses his authority. But I do think it means that there is a sort of confidence that we live with when we know we are secure in the family of God. And maybe that means we don't let the opinions of those who criticize us stick so deeply. That could be what it means because we ultimately know that everyone is answerable to our dad. I think, you know, it means this, as we grow, as we mature a little bit and live like a son, of, of, a son or daughter of the God who owns this place, that it changes. Like, maybe we realize the place that our dad owns is not just our playground, but it's actually, he's at work there. And maybe we hear his invitation to join that work. I don't keep in touch with my friend Keith, but I, I like to imagine, like, what if he grew up and worked with his dad? Um, what if he learned to love the shared purpose that he had with his father in this construction company? You know, I, I think that's a lot of what we see in Jesus, this real partnership between him and his heavenly father. And I think as we live into this idea that we are sons and daughters of God, this is the journey that we're on to partner with God in the same way where this confidence that we have to play and to enjoy the freedom that he gives, it morphs into this fearlessness to carry his cause into this world. We're not just the hired help of God. We are the chosen children of God. And that means we get to play, but that also means we get to be about our Father's business. Here's the thing. There's just one more thing Jesus wants to say to us today. He's getting ready to leave, and he just wanted to stop to say, by the way, we are family now, all of us. Everything I have with my Heavenly Father, you have. You have it now, too. We're family. May we live as if we are the sons and daughters of the God who owns this place. Lord, we're thankful just for including us. We're thankful that on your heart after you rose from the dead was us, your new children, your brothers and sisters. God, lead us into that relationship. Lead us into what it means to be your children and to live with that degree of confidence and purpose. We trust you, Lord. Amen.